Good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. No, we're not going to start all over again. I know that you've enjoyed our study in Ephesians so far, but we're not going to start all over. I just want to run into our text this morning in chapter 3. So turn to chapter 1. It is the case that over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've been blessed by some dear brothers here, Yogi Noresh and Joe Grui. They preached some wonderful messages for us the last couple of weeks on spiritual warfare and the holiness of God. I encourage you to check those out on our website. What a blessing it is to have those brothers here uh, serving alongside here at Community Bible Church. But now it's our time for a return to our study in Ephesians. And to do that, I feel it would be highly profitable if we take a quick tour, maybe a jet tour you could call it, and run through one and two, first, the first two chapters, as we launch back into this interruption, this parenthesis of Paul in chapter 3. Ephesians, as you know, is a letter designed to strengthen the church for spiritual warfare. How do you strengthen the church of Jesus Christ, the gathered holy ones, the saints, for spiritual warfare? You tell them what to believe, and you tell them how to behave. You do this built on the Bible, of course. You give them biblical doctrines and biblical duties. You give them orthodoxy and orthopraxy. You give them the wisdom of Christ, and you tell them the ways of Christ. And that's what Paul is doing in the text today. It's so critical for you to have a biblical worldview, to have what Paul is giving us, theology that comes from above, not man-centered theology that starts from the ground and man and goes up, not theology from below. And so Paul is going to give you theology from above. He's been doing that in two chapters so far, and he's going to continue that in chapter 3. But let's review for our own benefit and for the guests that might be here this morning. So you're in chapter 1. Let's run through this with me. Paul delivers in chapter 1 of Ephesians God's view of salvation. That's what I've called it, God's view of salvation. He's so thankful for all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that God has given to him that he wants to bless God by telling us God's view of salvation. In verse 4, you see that God elected and chose us to be his children, his saints, from before time began. Verse 5 saying, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Verse 7 says, we're the redeemed of God because of the blood of Christ. And in his blood, we have been lavished with all grace. Verse 13 says that we are sealed in the power of the Holy Spirit. No power on earth can unseal us from the love of God because of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. His power is achieved in the salvation that he delivers, that he supplies. And so chapter 1 concludes even with a prayer for you to know the power of God, even God's resurrection power when he raised Jesus from the dead. Chapter 2 then takes us to a spiritual resurrection, where chapter 1 ends with a physical resurrection of Christ. Chapter 2 begins with a spiritual resurrection. Why do you need resurrection? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is man's view of salvation. You need resurrection spiritually because chapter 2, verse 1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is the way that you start out life, dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 8 goes on to tell us that salvation is a gift of God. It's not something that you choose. It's something that's delivered to you. You don't earn it. It's given of God's grace. Verse 10 saying that we are the redeemed, the saved, the elect, that we are God's masterpiece. So much are we his masterpiece that God prepared good works from beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not done with views of salvation, however, in chapter 2. You saw God's view of salvation in chapter 1, man's view of salvation in chapter 2, and halfway through chapter 2, Paul goes into presenting 
the Gentile view of salvation. Why do you need the Gentile view of salvation? Because you need to know the peace for all mankind that only comes by way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is peace for everyone. That's what Paul wants you to understand. Peace is very much on the forefront of Paul's mind when he thinks about the Jew and Gentile division that's existed for 2,000 years and all the hatred between these two groups for all of this time. So in 2.12, he doesn't spare the Gentiles in reminding them that you were separate from Christ, strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That was your condition. Verse 13, but now, in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 15 says, the two, the Jew and the Gentile, have made into one new man in Christ. And boy, I just love verse 18. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. A Trinitarian verse that says Christ gave you access. You have a spirit living inside of you, and you now can talk to God himself. Verse 19 then tells you this. The Jews are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household. Welcome home. Welcome home. Race doesn't matter. Color doesn't matter. Income doesn't matter. Social status doesn't matter. Social power doesn't matter. Social privilege doesn't matter. Contrary to what any voice tells you matters today, those things don't matter. If you are in Christ, you are of God's household, and Paul says to you, welcome home. What a powerful place to be. And basking in the glory of the unity of this message that he's received from God. In chapter 3, it's time to go into prayer and thank God for his glorious grace and his salvation and the peace that he's brought among mankind, Jew and Gentile, being made into one new man in Christ. This is our glorious gospel this is the message, a gospel of salvation for all mankind. Nothing on earth is greater, more comforting, more brilliant, or more powerful than this gospel. And yet, as we saw three weeks ago, there's a credibility issue with this gospel. We see it in chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ. Here is the issue. If this message is so glorious, why does it come with imprisonments, pain, suffering, and loss? This is a great mystery. It seems like a conundrum, an enigma to our minds. Paul sees the credibility issue that's present, and he interrupts his own thoughts to explain his own suffering. He wants to pray to God in chapter 3, verse 1, and the verse should end with the words of verse 14, saying, I bow my knees before the Father. But he's stuck in a massive credibility issue because of his imprisonments and his sufferings. Should the Ephesians listen to a man bound in chains? Can they trust the message of a suffering and imprisoned steward? Why, if the message is so good, does it produce sufferings for those who proclaim it? And the answer to this mystery of suffering is found in knowing what is in the hearts of men. Men hate God. Men are born enemies of God, sin-filled and wicked. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Do you understand that all suffering is produced by the evil hearts of sinful men? That's where suffering comes from. It's not the gospel. From the evil hearts of sinful men who refuse the gospel. And this creates an even bigger mystery then. How do you fix the wicked, sin-filled hearts of men? You present the mystery of Christ. 
That's what you do. You present the mystery of Christ. You see, God is man's only surgeon. And the surgery required is called the euangelion. It's called the gospel. God performed his gospel heart surgery on Paul and presented to Paul the mystery of Christ. And when you consider the enemy of God that Paul was in his life, you can realize the grand unity that God has created in the mystery of Christ, that God can redeem, reconcile, restore, and rescue any wicked sinner, bringing them to grand unity with himself, with his son, through the power of his spirit. This is Paul's job. He gets to declare and proclaim this gospel, this salvation, this grand unity, the mystery of Christ to the Gentiles. To graft others in is his job. To graft others into this grand unity founded in the mystery of Christ, which is our gospel. It's his highest honor. It's his highest joy. He received it as a stewardship of God and the sufferings and the tribulations for preaching the mystery. He calls these but light momentary afflictions that produce an eternal weight of glory. The suffering mystery is nothing compared to the mystery of Christ and the grand unity of God with man. And as a result, his burden is to declare, to proclaim, to explain the mystery of Christ, which has produced his parenthesis of thought, his interruption and his clarification in chapter 3, which is where we find ourselves today. It is in this interruption that Paul makes known three secrets of God's mystery that fix our eyes on the grand unity of God's grace. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Three secrets of God's mystery that fix our eyes on the grand unity of God's grace. You want to see the grand unity of God's grace? It's in our text this morning. What three secrets of God's mystery will fix our eyes on the grand unity of God's grace? Secret number one, the mystery was hidden, and you need to understand that. Secret number two, the mystery is union. And secret number three, the mystery is given. You can see I ran those words down so you could have hug right there in your notes in your outline. The mystery was hidden, the mystery is union, and the mystery is given. Understanding the mystery's secrets will rejoice our hearts in God's grace and open our mouths to share the grand unity of this glorious gospel. Read the parenthesis, the full parenthesis with me in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll turn our attention and focus on verses 4 through 17. The whole of Paul's thought, the whole of his parenthesis before he dives into his prayer is this. Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insights into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body of Christ and fellow partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you not lose heart at my tribulations 
on your behalf, for they are your glory. This gospel, this mystery, this grace, this gospel, this mystery, this grace, this is amazing. It's amazing in the way that it makes men need to share it. You have a need to share this gospel, even to the point of your own suffering and death. The New Hebrides are an island chain in the South Pacific, just to the northeast of Australia. Dark-skinned heathens, even cannibals, lived on them in the 19th century. The native men were short, often less than five feet tall, and they thought poorly of wearing clothing. Men dominated the social order. Infanticide of baby girls was commonplace. Young men were expected to kill their widowed mothers so that the older women didn't burden the tribe. You can recognize women very clearly. They were the they were the human beings on these islands with their two front teeth knocked out. That was intentional. As a result, old women were a rarity on these islands, the New Hebrides. On the treatment of, uh, on the treatment of women, one chief said this, if we do not beat our women, they would never work. But when they have been beaten and killed and feasted on two or three, the rest are very quiet and good for a long time to come. As to the receptivity of the gospel, one tribal chief was reported to have said, we love and follow our ways. And if the worship of God condemns our ways, we'll kill you and destroy the worship of your God. November 1839, 180 years ago, John Williams and James Harris, missionaries from England, came ashore on the island of Aramango. They didn't come ashore to colonize on behalf of the British royal crown. They didn't come to trade and steal really good stuff off the islanders so they could make a profit. They didn't come to enslave the natives and take them as slaves to Australia, which had been done in the past, and make a profit that way. No, these men came to share the mystery of Christ. They came believing wholeheartedly in the power of God's grand unity. They came to call the islanders to repentance and faith in Christ. They came in love thinking the best of these men and of the gospel of Christ, that they could be saved as well and offering them even eternal life. And how did the islanders respond to the revival of these men who were burdened to share the gospel of Christ? John Williams and James Harris were speared and beaten to death and promptly eaten upon setting foot on shore. The mystery of Christ had been hidden from the cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands and would remain hidden because of their evil and murderous ways. This brings us to point number one in your notes, the secret of God's mystery. The mystery was hidden. The mystery was hidden. Let's read verses four and five again of our text. The mystery was hidden. We need to understand that God owns his mystery, and he alone decides when and how it will come to be known. By referring to this, Paul says, by referring to this, this grace, this stewardship, this revelation, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insights into the mysteries of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Paul says he has insights into the mystery of Christ. He has the details. He has the secrets, the sunesis in the Greek, which means understanding or the intelligence these secrets came to him from God by revelation and by God's grace. Further, he is saying, pay attention. Listen to the insights that I have. They're important for you, for your understanding. 
Why are they important? Because inevitably, someone will ask you, or even this, your own heart will ask the question, why did God hide such a powerful mystery? And why choose to reveal it only after so many years? Men have this terrible habit, and worse yet, a condition, I would call it, of doubting and questioning God's motives, His ways, and His plans. Many wives think that men have this terrible habit of doubting and questioning their ways and motives and plans. But we all have this problem, doubting and questioning God's ways and motives and plans. Men are born with theology from below, man-centered theology. And as a result, theology from above is confusing and even frustrating and leads to many questions for men. We sound like four-year-olds with all of our questions to God, but God is patient. By the way, do you tell your four-year-old everything that is happening in your life or in this world? Or are you required, because of the level of responsibility that you have over your children, to use discretion and discernment when, in the things in which you share with them? Do you have larger purposes that require you to hide birthday presents in plain sight? Of course you do. And your four-year-old is no less a person and no worse off in life by your hiding and withholding bigger plans designed for their good. On an infinitely larger scale, we are no less persons and no worse off because God hides things from us. Remember, we're the creature. He's the creator. And so the facts of the hidden mystery are very plain. God chose to hide a mystery. God was never obligated to share his mystery with anyone. God has a plan for his mystery that required hiding it. The season for hiding the mystery has ended. God's mystery has been revealed. The holy apostles and prophets are the delivery men of the mystery, and they are powered by the Holy Spirit of God for the mystery's delivery. And I just see seasons of life, seasons of time, where men were given this much revelation. One of the primary ones that comes to me in thinking about dispensations of time is the Israelites got to see God in a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. They got to see it physically. They got to see the physical presence of God manifesting itself in the temple, coming out, billowing out in smoke. There were men who got to see physical signs. Did they have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, indwelling them? No, they didn't. They were regenerated, but they were not indwelt. Brothers and sisters, you live in a generation and a dispensation where God has given you all the revelation you need in the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. You don't need signs. You don't need miracles. This is the age in which we live. We have the completeness of the revelation, the fullness of the mystery of Christ given to us. Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, verse 46. I'm going to show you more about this from Paul's first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas have been sent to the Jews and the Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch in Galatia. They go immediately to the synagogue on the Sabbath to share the gospel, and Paul shares the gospel powerfully in chapter 13 of Acts, verses 16 through 41. So powerfully does Paul share the gospel, he's asked to return. And upon their return, the Jews become very jealous of the large crowds that have gathered and started to contradict Paul. And wow, oh wow. Listen to Paul's rebuke of these Jews because of the Jews of all people should understand the grace of God delivers grand unity to all kinds of men, and they missed it. So read with me from 
verse 46 of chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. That's a slap in the face, by the way. Judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That was from our passage earlier in Isaiah 49, 6. Verse 48 here. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, those ones believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Well, clearly, being driven out is far better than being beaten and eaten as the men who attended to the New Hebrides, John Williams and James Harris. If anyone was supposed to understand the mystery of Christ, it was supposed to be the Jews. They should have known. There was enough information on the page that they have the, that they have the Holy Spirit. They rejected the grace of God and the mystery of Christ. And look what happens next. These Jews in Pisidian Antioch are rebuked by Paul, quoting from verse 6 of chapter 49 of Isaiah, one of the many places in the Old Testament that God has planned a big, big salvation which will have all of the nations in it, and God made this known from 700 years before Christ and going back even further. Jeremiah 3.17 speaks of a time when all the nations will be gathered to the throne of the Lord in Jerusalem. All the nations will be gathered to the throne of the Lord in Jerusalem. And what Jew could have forgotten the promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis? Genesis 28, 14, God is saying to Abraham, in you, Abraham, and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In Genesis 26, verse 4, God says to Abraham, by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And we get to the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul even goes into explaining the Old Testament. Genesis 12, verse 3, Paul explains it. He says the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Well, just in those texts, I gave you three examples from Genesis alone. I gave you Jer Jeremiah, I gave you Isaiah. Was the gospel hidden? Brothers and sisters, absolutely the gospel was hidden. No one knew how all these promises fit together in Christ, and yet it was hidden by God in plain sight. The Old Testament declares that a suffering Messiah would be king and salvation would be available to all the nations. Though it was hidden, the Jews should have understood the mystery when God revealed it. But something was missing. What were they not given which prevented their understanding? To these Jews in Pisidian Antioch with Paul, what was not given which prevented their understanding? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. They did not have the power to discern the word of God, to discern the mystery of Christ, because they did not have the Holy Spirit. The holy apostles and prophets were nothing without the Holy Spirit. He, the person of God who is the Holy Spirit, is the key to grand unity with God and with men. And when you have unity with God through the Holy Spirit, he compels you to have unity with all mankind, even to the point of your own suffering and death to get this message out 
through all the nations because he causes you to understand the mystery of Christ. He causes you to understand that there's nothing stopping this from giving this to anyone. This is available for anyone here today, this gospel of salvation, the mystery of Christ. It's available to you. You need to know that the Holy Spirit is the key. Is he working on your heart? Brother and sister, can I just say this and just pull off my notes and say, if he drew you in here today, if you're visiting us for the first time, he is alive and working, and he draws men. He calls men. It's his good pleasure to do that. And I would say, do not quit on the Holy Spirit of God drawing you. Respond to the drawing. Respond to the calling. Come to Christ. He can take your burdens of this life and lift them off when you understand the mystery of the gospel. The Holy Spirit lived in Paul. He lived in John Williams and James Harris, those missionaries to the New Hebrides. And his union with them and his righteous presence in their heart caused them to seek greater union with the nations. And that brings us to the second secret of God's mystery. The mystery is union. The mystery is union. The second point in our notes. The mystery was hidden, but we must understand the mystery is union. Who cares about the cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands? Who cares about those people? They're cannibals. They eat each other. They're warring with one another. They're throwing spears at one another. There's just maximum hatred out there on those islands. Why would you travel by boat way across the ocean to go to the New Hebrides Islands just off the northeast shore of Australia? Why would you go there? Those thoughts are the thoughts that attend the civilized world because those people are uncivilized. And why would you go out and save those people? Let them kill themselves off. Darwinian evolution, right? Let them take care of themselves. They'll, out, they'll just go away. They'll be a demise. They won't breed anymore. They'll be done. That's not the mindset of John Patton. Those weren't the heart thoughts of John Patton. John Patton is a Scottish man who was 15 years old when John Williams and James Harris were murdered and eaten by the cannibals on the New Hebrides. John Patton's desire was to reach the lost of the New Hebrides Islands. Even setting aside his own personal successful great ministry in Scotland where he was an evangelist for 10 years, ministering and preaching to over 500 people on Sunday mornings. On November 1858, 19 years after the deaths of Williams and Harris, John Patton and his wife, his first wife, Mary Ann, arrived on the island of Canna. Within months, tragedy struck John Patton's life upon his arrival on Canna. It was May of 1959. Mary Ann had given birth to Peter, their first son, and then she died of malaria. And within weeks, Peter, his son, died as well. He buried both of them behind his home on the island of Canna. You'd think he'd have every reason to leave, forget about these people, and go somewhere else. John Patton was resolved to stay and share God's mystery with these natives. He stayed put on Canna. He further suffered the loss of fellow missionaries Samuel Johnston, George and Ellen Gordon, as, as well as others. By worldly standards, at the end of his first four years on the island of Canna in the New Hebrides, John Patton's ministry was a terrible, success, or terrible failure, I should say. It was not a success. He had to leave the island for fundraising and the mobilization of more support. 
how could Patton continue to reach out to these cannibals when it was basically good for nothing? What was the source of his zeal for these islanders that looked nothing like him on the New Hebrides? Here's the answer. John Patton fully understood the mystery of union. The glorious truth that if Gentile and Jew can be made members of one body, so too can the cannibals of the New Hebrides be made one body with a guy from Scotland. We see this in verse 6. Read it together with me now as Paul explains the specifics of grand unity. Paul says in the text, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It is here where Paul defines the mystery of Christ. And in defining it, Paul is emphatic in this declaration. He's screaming at you, the Gentiles are God's children too. This is the mystery that has gotten him into tribulations and sufferings for these last many years of his life. Because racists, they don't want to hear this message of grand unity. And the Jews had become racists. They loved the division that their ethnicity gave to them. Boy, there's a whole bunch of conversation in our society about divisions. From Black Lives Matters to white supremacy, what does race have to do with the mystery of Christ? I get so frustrated and disillusioned why the church would pick up this conversation. It's a joke to me. It, it really is. What, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ have to do with your melanin count? I don't get that. Racists ignore the message of oneness. And in this church, that's what I love. I love the oneness. I love the togetherness with each and every one of you. That's what we have offered to us in the gospel, the fullness of unity for all of mankind, with all of mankind. There's nobody that you can't be a brother to and a sister with. That's glory. How full, together and complete, is Gentile union in the mystery of Christ? How full is this union? Well, Paul labors in the text to express Gentile triple togetherness with the Jews in the gospel. And I'm thankful for the New American Standard translators that put the word fellow into the text three times. The repetition is necessary. The New International Version does a good job with together being in the text three times. You should see together or fellow in the text three times. Why? Because again, Paul is here using his favorite prefix, the word soon in the Greek, S-U-N, soon, which means with, to express togetherness. The kind of togetherness that comes when you think about pancakes and syrup. The togetherness of peanut butter and jelly or macaroni and cheese. The togetherness of, say, Coach Mark Few in Gonzaga basketball. It's a rich kind of togetherness. It's the fullness of togetherness. Paul wants to communicate inseparability. This is the third time he's used the, the prefix soon to stress togetherness. And it's the third time that he's done it in groupings of three. Look at the text. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul says we were made alive, raised, and seated. And you see the word with Christ. That word with is the prefix soon. Three bunched together in verses 4 and 5. Three bunched together in verses 19 through 22. Paul says the Gentiles are citizens together, being fitted together, being built together into a holy temple in Christ. Again, threefold repetition in Christ, indivisibility, 
inseparable nature. That's the kind of union we're talking about. So you get to chapter 3, verse 6, and we come across a triple exclamation point of togetherness. A triple exclamation point of togetherness. Oneness, grand unity in Christ is what's presented. Where Paul declares the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promises in Christ. If those words aren't in your Bible, your translation, write them in. Fellow, three times, write it in. He even goes to the extent of making up a word at this point to express the togetherness. What does this mean for the Gentiles? How connected to, the, to Christ and the Jews are the Gentiles? Well, let me give it to you this way. Gentile union to Christ and the Jews is greater togetherness than the togetherness experienced by Gonzaga University's men's basketball team and the NCAA's number one ranking for these last many weeks. More together than them. Gentile union to a divine inheritance is stronger than the union of Gonzaga basketball to the West Coast Conference Championship. Gentile union is membership in a body more united than 18 men and four coaches on Gonzaga's basketball team after 26 straight wins. We're more united than GU basketball. Gentile union means partaking in eternal promises far, far, far superior to the prospect of winning an NCAA tournament championship. What are your eyes fixed on today? Some of you are thinking about that selection this afternoon. Knock it off. I know. Every time you see the letters GU, I want you to think Gentile union. I want you to think grand unity. You must think gospel union, glorious union. There's no more Gonzaga University. GU, Gentile union, means identical salvation as well. It's not a second-rate salvation. It's the same salvation. Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. It's the same salvation as heirs. Gentiles get the same heaven as the Jews. There's no segregation. You know, part of my studies this week caused me to go back and look at the imagery of the segregation that existed in America prior to the 1960s. I was disgusted at the segregation. If you kids don't know about it, you should look at the pictures. Based on someone's melanin, they have to use a different bathroom? Are you kidding me? Who does this? You know who does this? People who have fallen for a false cultural narrative. Some joker stood up over here and said, you're white, you're black, I'm with you. Those people are bad. You know, it, it's, it's so easy to make this kind of division, to divide people. I did it as soon as I showed up here. I divided you. You didn't even know it. Tea drinkers unite. It's so easy to create a silly division that doesn't exist. Do you understand that? Melanin in someone's skin. Brother, I don't care how much melanin you have. If you know Christ, you're my brother. I know that's the way you feel as well. So hold on to that. And don't let these false cultural narratives bankrupt you from the gospel of Christ.
There is no segregation. They are heirs, the Gentiles are. As members of the same body, the Gentiles and Jews are indivisible. You can't see where the one begins and the other one ends. We're all necessary for the health and well-being of each other as we are fitted in the body of Christ. We're all made to function as one in the body of Christ. As partakers of the promises also in Christ, this is the third understanding, this third fellowship, they're partakers of the promises. They receive all the fullness of salvation supplied in Christ's sacrificial, substitutionary death. And as I thought about the promises of Christ, my mind couldn't help but go to Ephesians, or sorry, Isaiah 53, verse 5. The Jews and the Gentiles, they get to say this together. The Jews and the Gentiles say this together. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. You're in Titus chapter 3. Let's read the together salvation that is identical for Jew and Gentile from Titus chapter 3. Titus 3 verse 3 reads like this. For we also once were foolish, ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you don't have this union with God, you should want it. Because the only other option for you is eternal disunity with God and conscious suffering in the flames of hell. If you do have this salvation and this union with God, you should be compelled to share the mystery of union with others that they might enjoy the heaven that God has prepared for you and for I and for all of us with him forever in all of eternity in perfection. John Patton's heart could not resist the call of God on his life to preach the mystery of Christ, the mystery of union with God to the islanders of the New Hebrides that they might escape the fiery flames of hell and enjoy eternal life in heaven forever. 1866. John Patton and his wife Margaret and their first son Robert made a home, sorry, his second wife, his new wife Margaret, and their first son Robert made a home on the island of Anawa. He went back. Their reception on Anawa was far better than on Tana. As the first Sunday service that he preached at, there were 20 islanders in attendance. In a year's time, that number grew to an attendance of 120 all of this while John and Maggie had nine additional children added to them on this island, of which four died. And yet, at the end of his 15-year-long ministry on this island, Patton could report 12,000 natives saved. And of that, 133 of those natives 
were commissioned into gospel ministry and sent out as missionaries. Patton said, Anoa was to be the land wherein my past years of toil and patience and faith were to see their fruits ripening at length. I claimed Anoa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Anoa now worships at the Savior's feet. Do you see, from eternity past, God had determined to save many islanders on the New Hebrides Islands. And he allowed that to be hidden in time for all of these generations until he brought a light into that land. One missionary was found questioning a native named Isaiah about what God had done. And he asked Isaiah this. He said, Isaiah, have you yourself tasted human flesh? Isaiah's eyes looked at the ground. And without raising them back up, Isaiah touched his fingers to his lips, a clear sign that the answer was yes. And then after a moment, Isaiah spoke, saying this, It is true, sir, I have eaten, and I am full of shame. But sir, it was in the days of darkness before the light came. God is good-hearted, and I am forgiven. Amen, Isaiah. Amen. God is good, and God is the forgiver. More than the forgiver, God is the giver of salvation. Which brings us to our third secret of God's mystery. The mystery is given. The third secret of God's mystery is the mystery is given. Point number three in your notes, the mystery is given. What we see in verse 8, Paul considers himself the least of all the saints because he was himself a murderer of Christians. Friend, don't you understand by this point, God gives salvation to whomever he chooses. He doesn't give salvation based on how good anyone is. He gives it to murderers and he gives it to cannibals alike. He gives salvation because he has made an eternal plan for you that you would receive his love at an appointed time and that you would love and serve and worship him all the days of your life. He doesn't deviate from the plan. We had a great time talking about Romans 9 in our Bible study this past week as we understood why doesn't God save everyone? Why not save everyone? Do you know why? Because before the foundation of the world... He wrote your name in the book of life. He will not add or subtract the names that he wrote from the book of life before he created anything. And so he will not deviate from his plan. He has those whom he will save, and he will save on his time frame. You need to understand that God is the one who's in charge of salvation and his unmerited favor that he places on people. And the question for you this morning would be, because he places his divine favor on those who don't deserve it, regardless of anything that they've ever done, is he drawing you to that salvation? Is he drawing you to the worldview that acknowledges his glory above all else? Is he drawing you to your need because of your sinfulness of the salvation that comes from this cross, from the cross of Christ. Is he drawing you to salvation this morning? If so, what amount of sinning in your past can stop God from giving salvation to you 
from applying salvation onto you. No amount of sinning. There is no sin that anyone could commit that God can't reconcile and redeem him and bring him to eternal life in him. For that, we praise God. And that's what we see in the life of Paul. Let's read chapter 3, verse 7 together and see the third secret of God's mystery. The mystery is given. Paul says the Gentiles have full union through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And verse 7 says, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Inasmuch as Paul is here presenting God's mystery, it is impossible for him to do so without the persistent drumbeat of grace. You see it in the text. Grace shows up three times in Paul's interruption in verses 2, 7, and 8. Each one of them, to me, is a division marker in the text. Grace, as you remember, is simply divine favor. Grace is unmerited and unearned. You cannot achieve grace. God's grace must be given to you. This is the third secret of the mystery of Christ. Knowing the mystery of Christ, that it cannot be achieved, but it must be received. How do we know it must be received? Paul says, I was made a minister, a minister, a deacon, a servant. I was made. Paul did not choose this for himself. It was delivered onto him. The verb here is in the aorist tense and in the passive voice. This is a past action that happened on Paul, to Paul, and the actor was God. God was the mover. God was the maker of Paul's conversion of his salvation. Paul received what God gave, and moreover, Paul was made to receive what God gave. And again, Paul says, grace was given to me according to the working of his power. Again, past action happening on Paul, to Paul, Paul was made to receive the gift. And let's consider the gift. And as we consider the gift, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts 11. Do you demand gifts or do you receive them? Just saying. For your birthday. Do you demand gifts or do you receive them? Which of you on your birthday demands gifts of anyone? Friends? Spouse, parents, I saw you elbow her. <laughs> Grandma and grandpa, do you make demands? You can't do that. You don't do that. You can't do that. You don't demand somebody's grace be given to you in a gift. Salvation also then is a gift of God. Grace is a gift of God. Forgiveness is a gift of God. And the knowledge of the mystery of Christ is a gift of God. These are gifts that God is the one who gives. We're not, ta- we're not Gnostics. We're not talking about special secret knowledge over here that, oh, just claw and scratch away and you'll figure it out. We'll, you'll get strong enough and smart enough. I'm praying for you to get stronger. I'm not praying for you to get stronger. I'm praying for God to apply salvation directly on your head. That's what you need to understand the mystery. God has to do this. And if he's drawing you, don't stop him from drawing you. It's a beautiful thing that God draws us into a right relationship with him. Paul received what God had given. Acts 11, verse 15. Salvation is a gift of God. Brothers and sisters, on that point, we're at a battleground in Christianity. This is a battleground moment in Christianity on that point. How do you get the gift? How do you get the gift? There are only two options available to you. Either men choose to get the gift for themselves, working synergistically with God, or God gives the, gi- gives the gift monergistically of his own free will. Whose will does the Bible highlight? 
does the Bible highlight the free will of men? Or does the Bible highlight the free will of God? Is salvation synergistic or is it monergistic? Can I say this to you? Synergism is what all of the other religions of the world believe in. And even half of Protestantism believes in a synergistic system. Roman Catholics, Muslims, Jews, they all believe that you're working together with God to shape a salvation of your own understanding. The Bible says God alone saves. That salvation is monergistic. It is the action of one, mono, one. That's the salvation we want to pursue. These are the only two options. There's no neutral ground, and your spiritual health demands that you know the biblical answer. The apostles knew the answer and declared plainly God's power as the giver. You're in Acts chapter 11, verse 15. Peter is in Jerusalem reporting to the brethren about to the brethren about the vision that God sent him. It was a vision of a blanket coming down with food on it. It's lunchtime. I can't talk to you about that. It was a vision in which he heard three times, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. The message from God for Peter was this, salvation is for the Gentiles too. God had a mission. God had a plan, grand unity for Jew and Gentile. And God sent Peter to the house of Cornelius, who was a Roman soldier, and Peter preached the mystery of Christ to his whole family. And what was the response? Verse 15 tells us, as he reports back to the brethren, Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be immersed with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they, the brethren, heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God's mystery, brothers and sisters, is hidden in Christ, and it must be given. While you're there in Acts 11, just turn back over to Acts 13. We were there earlier. I want to look at verse 48 specifically because Peter and Paul are emphatic on these two points. God must give salvation, and God gives salvation to anyone. There's no partiality with God. He saves the rich and the poor, the slave and the master, the young and the old, the Jew and the Gentile, the black man, brown man, red, yellow, and white man. How must we respond to such a glorious mystery with great rejoicing and glorifying God, who alone appointed this grand union from before the foundation of the world. Verse 48 of chapter 13. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, those ones are the ones who believed. Hold on to that truth. There's great certainty and confidence in the salvation that we have in Christ. Well, today we continued with Paul as he interrupted his own thoughts to present a mystery. It is the mystery of Christ that has led to his sufferings and his imprisonments, and it is for the sake of grand union that Paul labors even in prison for the gospel. We saw Paul reveal three secrets of God's mystery, which fix our eyes on the grand unity of God's grace. Mystery number one, the mystery was hidden. Mystery number two, the mystery is union. Mystery number three, the mystery is given. Hug, right? I gave it to you. 
It is union. It is grand union. How must we respond to such glorious revelations, knowledge, grace, and truth? Number one, go home, grab all of your GU merchandise, and write on it, Gentile union. Number one, recognize God's power. Recognize God's power. Far too often you will miss the sight of God's power because you think too highly of your own power. Do you fully understand how weak humanity is, how you are? Not only physically, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, you're a mess. Do you believe that you have an incredibly great ability, even a spiritual ability? Wow, there's pride in that. Has God given you a good dose of emptiness? so that you might know the depth of your own weakness? I would hope that as America thinks on the course of this last year that that's exactly what so many of our brothers and sisters would get is a real dose of their emptiness, the ability to have any kind of strength at all in this life. The life spent believing that the blessings and strength come from you is a life of pride and vanity that will meet with total despair. And I pray that God would crush that out of you. I pray that God would crush your thoughts of personal power to do anything so that you would begin to comprehend that God is the source of all power, especially the power to condemn, to be condemned in hell forever, and the power that he has to save wicked sinners and eternally unite them in Christ to believers and to himself. I would ask that you honor God's power. Your unity with him depends on how you honor his power. Second, I would tell you this, rejoice at grand unity in Christ. Rejoice at grand unity in Christ. You must love and appreciate the gospel of Jesus like John Patton and Isaiah the Islander of the New Hebrides did. They knew and celebrated God's grand one new man union in Christ. They rejoiced in that. John Patton was reflecting on on the first baptisms of Anawa and he said this, At the moment I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and the seals of the Redeemer's love, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. John saw the grand union God had designed, and he was overwhelmed that this cannibal, would be his fellow brother in heaven forever. You must rejoice that God needs nothing from mankind when he makes grand unity between the slave and the free, between the missionary and the cannibal, between the black and the white and the red and the brown. God only requires obedience from his chosen slaves who have one mission, one mission, share the glorious union of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is so important for you to know in a world that has grand disunity masquerading as unity. Will grand unity be found in political parties? Will grand unity be found in supporting organizations like Black Lives Matter who seek only to divide us further? You must surround your heart and your mind and give your devotion and time to brothers and sisters of the faith who love grand unity in Christ more than they love the color of their skin, 
the quantity of their possessions or their societal power and influence. What do you love more? This church needs to love Christ and the mystery and the power of the grand union of the gospel. Third, I would tell you, be united in the church. Be united in the church. You need a source and strength of unity in this life. Do you stand united with a local church? There are no one-brick spiritual houses. For years, personally, I played the game. I'll do church on my own. I'm better off that way. I've been down that road, brothers and sisters. That's no home for you. There's too much in Scripture that says unite. There's too much. There's a lot of young people in here. You guys are getting engaged in dating these days, I know. You don't get to date forever. It's not a five and six year process, young men. Especially when it comes to my daughter. It's going to happen faster than that, people. Don't date the church. Don't do that. Don't come and receive spiritual benefits and blessings and pretend a phony community if you're not in full unity. Don't do that. If you're here, unite. If you're here, commit. Who are the leaders appointed over you in the Lord? Do they know that? Are you obedient to Hebrews 13, 17? Did you read the text lately? Submit to the elders appointed over you? Who are they? Are you members? Are you committed? God's vehicle for spiritual growth is the church. There's grand unity in his plan in putting you as spiritual bricks into the church. Don't presume on God that you're going to build a spiritual brick house outside of the church. You were designed for union and for membership in a local body. Why would you live in rebellion to this call of God on your life? Pursue the grand union of God's design and get connected to a local body where, com where commitments are made. Dating is to get you to the point of known commitment and the declaration of that commitment. Make the declaration. Father in heaven, the grand unity that you present in the gospel of Jesus Christ matters so much to us. It's our everything. Union with you means union with everyone who you want to save. And we don't see an S stamped on the backs of those who are saved. And so the call for us, Father, we receive it as the church we receive it, is to go and to proclaim the glory of the mystery of Christ and the grand union of his gospel. Make us faithful to you. Make us faithful to the gospel that is grand union with you. Make us faithful to your church. And in so, we will be faithful to your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.